If you have your Bibles, uh, go with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to take uh, a few moments to look at the words of Jesus concerning uh, something that a lot of us think a lot about, and that's, and that's money. Uh, Luke chapter 11. We're going to jump in at verse 14, but our actual sermon comes from chapter 12, verses uh, 13 through 21. But if we just jump in chapter 12, have you ever been, or have you ever been talking to somebody and you're in a conversation and the third party comes in and they jump into the conversation halfway through and they ask what's going on and you're like, well, and it's very difficult to explain. Anybody ever had that awkward moment? You know, it's kind of like, well, this, but if I told you where we are right now, it would take an hour to let you know. We're not going to do an hour introduction just so that you, knew, that you know, but sometimes in the Bible, if we just jump into a passage and we don't really understand what's happening before it, it's kind of like that awkward conversation to where we just jump in the middle and don't actually know what's going on. So here's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about money and the gospel. How does Jesus tell us to approach money? We hear about money all the time, don't we? I mean, all you have to do is turn on the news, right? And it's about money. You pick up a newspaper and it's about the economy. You you pick up a journal and it's about finances. So we as Christians, how are we supposed to view money? There are some people, and, and just if you've ever said heard this, just kind of let me know by a nod, they say, money is the root of all evil. How many of you have ever heard something like that? Okay. That's close to the truth, but totally wrong. In the book of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says that not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. So what we're going to look at is an amazing picture of how Jesus tells us how we should understand and use money for the glory of God. But before we do that, let's just pause for a moment and ask God to give us help. Can we do that? Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and ask the Lord to teach us today. Father, we we admit that the power comes from You. It doesn't come from big words or funny stories. And we need Your power in our lives. We need You to teach us. So we ask that You would speak to us this morning through Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Verse 14 in chapter 11 of the book of Luke, Jesus is casting out a demon from a person who is mute. They can't talk. Now, can you imagine not being able to talk? Now, for some of us in here, that might be a real problem because I know a lot of people who like to talk. You know know I'm talking about? Like they say, she's a talker or he's a talker. I have known some people and they speak, you know, normally about 200 words per minute with gusts up to 4,000. I mean, for some people, seriously, talking is the way that they express themselves. But try to put your place, 
yourself in the place of this, this person who was mute. Now, the Bible says that the muteness was caused by some type of a demonization or a demonic possession. Now, the Bible's not teaching here that every case of, civic, of physical problem is caused by demon possession. That's not what's going on here. But in this case, it was. So, here's Jesus. He comes to this person who cannot talk, and he casts the demon out so that the person can talk. Everybody's going crazy. I mean, can you imagine that? You have all these thoughts going on in your mind, but you can't express them. And all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus comes, and he casts out the demon, stopping you from speaking, and you can speak. What an amazing thing. And, and then everybody's excited, but then the Pharisees, right? The church crowd, they're like, Jesus, we know how you do this. You're like in cahoots with the prince of the demons, and so you can throw out demons. Jesus begins in verse 17, blasting away at religious hypocrisy. And by the way, if you've been in church for a long time, it's very possible to be inoculated against truth because we think, I've been there and I've done that, like the old Mountain Dew commercial. But what we must do is remain open before the Lord. Amen, church? I mean, we have to remain and have a soft and an open heart towards the things of God. And then over in verse number 27, there's this lady and she's hearing this sermon and she gets kind of excited. Man, I remember in Florida, we had some Jamaicans in the church. Uh, they were black people from Jamaica who were in a church with white people. And by the way, if you can't worship with people who don't look like you, you're going to be really uncomfortable in heaven because the book of Revelation says that there will be people from every tribe, nation, tongue, kindred. Everybody's going to be there. So if you have a problem with that here, you're not really going to like it up there. Are we okay in the house today? All right, so in Florida, the pastor said, why don't we just close our eyes and just speak to the Lord and tell Him how thankful you are to be saved. And this lady named Patrona, she was sitting there and you got all these, you know, you got a big group of older white people and then you have this Jamaican lady and all of a sudden she goes, Hallelujah! I mean, we had like eight heart attacks all of a sudden. Um, it was good, but she was just like, man, I'm so excited to be saved. And notice in verse 27, this one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words, your mom must be proud of you. But Jesus doesn't cheer on. Notice what He says in verse 28. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. You know what Jesus is saying? Proximity to Me and My teachings does you no good unless you follow it. You realize you can come to church every week and hear the gospel presented every single time, but it will do you no good at all. You know, sometimes people tell us, well, go to church. You realize you can come to church. It's not going to do you any good. The way that it does good is if we not only hear what Jesus tells us, but we also do it. How well did it ever work back in high school basketball, football, soccer, when the coach told you to do something? You're like, coach, that is a great piece of advice. Write that down. Appreciate that, coach. And you go back to doing right what you're doing. I mean, what is the coach seriously going to do? He's going to be like, what are you doing? In the same way, if we hear about Jesus and what He says, but we never obey Jesus, it's not, not only going to not help, but it's going to actually be more responsibility that we have towards God 
In verse 28, Jesus does that. And then over in verse 29, there were more people coming. So this was like a big block party. You've got Jesus heal somebody. Everybody's excited. The religious people don't like it. They start talking to Jesus. Jesus talks back to them, begins to show them the error of their ways. A lady gets excited. Jesus answers her. And so you have this whole big group of people. And Jesus begins in verse 29 all the way through 36 talking about how do you know that God is real? And very clearly Jesus says that if you demand signs and miracles from God, you have a lack of faith because God has revealed Himself to us all through our conscience. If you're talking to your friend and they do not believe in the existence of God, arguments are great, absolutely. But deep down, I believe that in every single person, we know if we unlocked this door and went down this hallway and went through this basement and found the secret cubby hole of the door of our heart, even for a person who says they don't believe in God, I believe that every person deep down knows there is a God. That's why Jesus said only a wicked and a perverse generation demands special signs. And then in verse 37, it's kind of like, okay, lunch break. That was kind of heavy, wasn't it? I mean, how long have we been going? For about five, six minutes? I mean, can you imagine being there and hearing what Jesus was saying? But he goes in verse 37 to have lunch with a Pharisee who asked him. So Jesus is in the house of the Pharisees. They didn't have um, places... To, to go, you know, like, like Subway and um, Burger Heart Attack and, you know, places like that. If you, somebody asked you out to eat, you went to their home. So here Jesus is in the home, and notice what he did not do. He did not ritually wash his hands. Now, moms, this is not saying that Jesus was a bad boy and he didn't wash up before supper. The cleansing here, the ritual washing, had very little to do with cleanliness as it had to do with a ritual. That's why it says in verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed. Now, the Pharisee didn't even say anything to Jesus. Jesus is in the Pharisee's house, and Jesus in verse 39 is a very respectful guest. Notice what he says. Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. Hello! That's not how my grandmother taught me to behave when somebody asked you to their home to eat, right? I mean, have you ever been over to somebody's house and they have like that annoying dog? You know, and it's like jumping all over you and biting you and tearing your shoe apart. And um, all of a sudden you're like, God, I think you've called me to be an NFL punter. You know, it's good. And that's what you feel. But you don't say it because you want to be polite. Well, notice that Jesus is not dealing with something like an annoying dog or something like that. He's dealing with, this is so amazing, Jesus knew what they were thinking before they even said it. And Jesus begins to blast away at the Pharisees. So Jesus says to the Pharisees over verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. Now this W-O-E is not like, woe, you're about to run into somebody. It's not like the woe, slow down your horse. Or it's not like in surfer dialect when they see a big wave and they say, woe. This is actually, some of y'all get that later. Um, 
We're not close to the beach. I'll move on. Um, Verse 42, when he says, whoa, what this literally means is in an interjection of disaster and horror. The Apostle Paul used this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, when he said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In the book of Revelation, it says in verse 12 of chapter 9, The first woe or disaster came, and after this, there are still two more woes to come. Speaks of the last seven years of really history as we know it on planet earth. The Bible says judgment after judgment will fall upon the earth, and they will be characterized as something that is woe. Which means bad things are about to happen. But notice that Jesus was not doing this to be rude. You catch that? He was pointing out the danger of unconfessed sin. So really what Jesus is doing here, He's not being rude, He's actually being merciful, right? Because if you see somebody, and you let's say for example a blind man, and he's walking along with his stick, and he doesn't know that there's a cliff, because he's blind, a very cruel thing to do would say, well I don't want to disturb the blind man. He's having a great walk. The merciful thing would be to go over and say, stop, you're going to where there's destruction. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that if you don't repent, you're going to perish. But then in verse 45, you have a lawyer. Now, this was not like a legal lawyer. Um, Heard somebody say, uh, how do you know a lawyer's lying um, if his mouth is moving? Um, That's not totally true. I've known some some godly um, Christian uh, lawyers. Uh, before one's actually uh, in Texas practicing right now. I've known a couple. Verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him, this is a lawyer who studied the law of God in the Bible. This lawyer said, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. So they notice what Jesus says. He says, I'm sorry. I'm trying to be politically correct here. I don't want to offend anybody. Why don't you just come to my church? I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Won't you come please and ask me into your heart and do the ABCs? Does he do that? No. In verse 45, Verse 46, Jesus turns to them and says, Woe to you lawyers as well. It's like Jesus turns his guns from the Pharisees to the lawyers. He's like, so Jesus is there with like this theological shotgun against sin and just boom, 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 taking everybody out. And then all the way through verse 52, he's just blasting away. And in verse 53, the lawyers and the scribes, they've had it. So they begin to go at Jesus like a pack of wolves. And then in verse 1 of chapter 12, said that thousands of people had gathered together. Remember back the way it was when you were in school and there was that word, fight? Right? It's like, fight. Yeah. You remember what happened, right? People are like, oh, fight? Cool. Well, i got to go study chemistry. You tell me how that went next period, right? That's what happened, wasn't it? And I've got to go stay back. No, people are like, I mean, people swarm to that. I mean, like, they are like, fight men. What is going on? There are actually thousands of people. This is so funny. There were so many, verse 1 says, that they were stepping on one another. So this is like day after Thanksgiving sale, minus the after Thanksgiving sale. It's the crowd. And by the way, I've been there before, and I have seen six foot six, 250 pound men back down from four foot women. I mean, when some of those ladies get there for the sale, that S-A-L-E, they are dead set on it. Watch out. So, moving on. Um, verse 1, there was such a huge crowd that these people were literally stampeding because of the excitement. Well, notice what Jesus does when he has a crowd. He begins to read chicken soup for the soul, right? Isn't that what he does in verse, verse 1 and 2? Then he starts saying, 
Have your be- I mean, what, what does he do? He says, oh my goodness, beware of the leaven of the, fez- of the Pharisees. This is a picture he's saying, watch out for hypocrites. The, hi- the people are right there. Like Jesus is not talking about the people. The people are there. And people are like, oh, did you just see that? Smackdown, WWE, Jesus is pointing out the Pharisees and they're there. Are you guys getting that? Like they're there. Jesus is there. Lots of people are there. And he's like, see those guys? Yeah, you. You guys see them? Don't be like them. I mean, what guts? Jesus totally called these people out. And then it gets even heavier. Notice over in verse 4, this is very appropriate. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that, no more can they do. He's basically saying, I'm going to die. These people are going to come after me. They have bloodlust now. They smell it. I'm going to die. But guess what? The power of God will raise me from the dead. Which let me just say, fellow believers here this morning, that if Jesus has conquered death, there's no greater fear than the fear of death. So if He's done that, then we don't really have anything ultimately to fear. Isn't that good news today? That if Jesus has broken the power of death, if He's broken the crankshaft, if He's knocked the teeth out of the monster of death, then we, if we trust in Jesus, we trust in the One who no one can even come close to being as powerful. So then He begins to talk in verses 8 all the way through 12 about the unpardonable sin. Whoa. I mean, this is getting like heavy, heavy, heavy. And then in verse 13, this is, by the way, those of you who like random moments, this is, would be an example of a random moment. I picked up a couple of students when I was in South Carolina to take them to church. And we were uh, driving along, and this one, he said that he had never been saved before. So I began to present the gospel and how Jesus could save him. And if he would repent and turn from his sin, he could be saved. And then there was kind of like a little moment of silence. And then his buddy said, dude, who do you think would win in a war? Like a ninja or a knight? And like, what did that have to do with anything? That's just totally random. So notice what verse 13, someone in the crowd, this guy, we don't know who he is, says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You're like, what? After the unpardonable sin? I mean, seriously, were you not paying any attention? I mean, can you imagine that? People are like, oh, okay, this guy just threw out a demon. He's pointing out every error in the Pharisees. Nobody could nail him. He's talking about the unpardonable sin. Excuse me, question. It's like, what? Here's one thing that greed will do to every single one of us. Greed will blind us so that we don't hear what's really important. It will be such an all-consuming thing that the only lenses through which we see the world are green. Then Jesus said in verse 14, Man, who appointed me as a judge or arbitrator over you? What Jesus is saying is, I did not come to be Judge Judy. And praise God for that. Jesus, you like that one? Cool. So Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to just be a petty court judge. I didn't come to be your trial lawyer. I came to seek and save that which was lost, right? I mean, that's the reason why Jesus came. And so what he's saying is, don't try to sidetrack me from my job. And and let me just say here, church, that many churches across the U.S. do a lot of good things, but most churches fail at the main thing. You know what the main thing is? Taking the gospel to every people group on the planet. 
We've got, we do a great job with care groups. We do a good, a good job with visitation to people who are sick. We do a good job with sometimes children or student ministries. We do stuff that's visiting people. But if we neglect what Jesus came for, then everything else doesn't really matter because if we simply keep it here, then what's the point? I mean, imagine if the first disciples had done that. They said the gospel is for us, by us, and through us. So we're here and we're going to reach out just to Jerusalem. If any of you, most of us probably have a large percentage of European ancestry. I have a little bit of Indian. If you have any European ancestry, any ancestry other than Semitic Jew, you're the result of people taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you're here today. I praise God that people busted out of the social mores and said, I don't care what has been done before. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He did not come to be a trial lawyer. He did not come to be involved in petty church stuff. Can I get a witness? He came to seek and save that which was lost. So here's where Jesus tells an incredible story. Verse 15. He says, Beware... This is, now he's talking to the crowd. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now this verse 15 is very difficult to translate. The King James Version and others translates it differently. But literally, the word here for possessions is an active form, but it's temporary. What Jesus is really saying is that your life does not equal what, check this out, what you are currently right now in possession of. What Jesus is saying is that you can't eternally own anything that's physical. Wow. That means all of our cars, our houses, our baseball gloves, our bats. We're going to use some props here. For those of you who like visuals, I'm a very visual person. All of this represents things that we could possibly own. But none of that we can ultimately own. So Jesus says, beware of every form of greed. Remember when I was in, uh, a kid in Louisiana, and we loved to go in the woods. And uh, the state bird in Louisiana is the mosquito, for those of you who didn't know. And so we would go into woods, and um, we would spray ourselves down, basically take a bath with off. And this was before the deep was taken away. So, you know, mosquitoes would bite you, and mosquitoes would, would die. I mean, it was powerful stuff. So we're walking through the woods, and it was such a thick tree cover. I remember this. I was about 15 years old, and I saw this, this one area to where there wasn't tree cover, and it was a bright, shiny day, and the sun was shining down, almost like you had a Q-beam spotlight from the top of the trees to the bottom of the forest floor. And, and we walked, and we noticed there was just leaves everywhere, and then we looked closer because it kind of drew your attention to this one spot and we noticed that the leaves were very pretty but then the leaves kind of kind of had a little circular pattern I realized that it was a copperhead greed is like that greed will find any environment in our life that is conducive to let it live and it will coil up and it will strike us and I'm telling you only by the power of God can we be set free from a greedy mindset you say, well, what happened to the snake? Um, it met a daisy BB gun. That's what happened to the snake. You say, Jeff, do I have to be rich in order to be greedy? No. And by the way, I've met many rich people who have been saved by the power of God, who understand that they're supposed to use their possessions for the glory of God, and they're not greedy. And on the other hand, 
I've met some poor people who have been greedy, and I've met poor people who are not greedy. I've met rich people who are. The, the, the point that Jesus is making here is it's not the amount of possessions that you own. Because there were many rich men in the Bible who God used greatly. But it's what you do with your riches. Are we all clear on that? We, 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 all, we, all, we got that? It's not the amount of what you have, but what you use, what you have for. For example, if everything in my life I think is there to make me happy, then I am a covetous person and I will not experience the blessing of God on my life. But even if I make under the poverty level and I say, God, you've given me this for your glory, then God will use you and I in a mighty way. Sometimes in church, churches can be like this. Talk to one pastor and he said, well, we're successful. I said, well, tell me something about that. He said, we've saved up $70,000 in the bank. We're good. Let me be very honest with you today. If our version of success in Rocky Mount Baptist Church is the size of our bank account, I would like to make a motion that we close the doors, I'll go serve in India as a missionary, and we all go home. Because if we think that we can get the gospel out by getting security from what God said we can never get security from, then we're not here for the gospel. But if we understand that when we have funds to use those for what God says is important, God will pour out His blessing on this church. I believe that. So here's the way the parable goes. In verse 16, Jesus says there was a land of a rich man who was very productive. Here's what happened. He worked, he got rich. Verse 17. So he's like, what am I going to do? He began reasoning to himself. He kind of talks to himself. Any of you talk to yourselves? Okay, you ever been doing that, right? You talk to yourself and you're maybe even, you're talking to yourself while driving. You're, you're going down the road and then you're talking to yourself and then the cool tune comes on the radio and then you begin to play air guitar, air drums and then somebody sees you and you try to play that off. Ever been there? Okay, some of you have, and some of you are very, very, very normal and very mature. So, we see there he's talking to himself. Now, here's an interesting part when you read your Bible. Did you know that every instance when a person is reasoning to themselves in Scripture, it's looked on in a negative light? Why? For the simple reason that it is a person who's reasoning with himself and not asking God what he thinks. Don't you think that would be a wise thing to do? I mean, if God created everything, He created us, He sustains us. Don't you think it would be a wise thing to say, God, what do you want me to do with what I have? And here's where it gets very interesting. Here's what He says, verse 17. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Don't you think this guy has a little bit of a me monster problem? <laughs> I mean, my goodness, it's like me, I, and myself, and me. And my goodness, it's all about him. And, and let, me, let me say something here. Who is your consultant? We're all going to consult somebody with what to do with what we have. And if we only consult the world, because the world says you deserve this, right? It's a good thing to work hard. It's a good thing to save up. The book of Proverbs said, blessed is the man who saves up an inheritance for his children's children. Wow. That's an accomplishment. Can I get it? I mean, can I get it? I mean, my goodness, to save up for your grandkids? Sometimes it's hard just to save up for yourself. 
But Jesus says that this guy was focused inward on himself. And so he desired basically to retire here. In verse 18, he says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to save up so that I can live it up. And notice, he's like, don't rock the boat. You see, it's all about himself. Don't rock the boat. I deserve this. I earned this. But then God speaks. Oh my goodness. Verse 20. But God said to him, well done. Good bank account. What Does God say? No. What, what does he say? Help me out. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? Jesus said a few chapters before in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Imagine that. Guys, imagine every video game, every bass boat, every big truck you could ever own. Ladies, imagine every Gucci purse. I think that is a brand of purses. I think. I've been told. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm not a purse expert. But um, everything that you could ever own. And Jesus says that that, if you lose your soul, doesn't mean anything. So you're like, man, Jeff, what do we do about this? Well, here Jesus gives several application points on how we can put this into practice. If you're taking notes, you may want to write these down. Verse 17, here's how we can, we, we, we don't have to repeat these mistakes. This is how we can live the way we should for Jesus Christ. Number one would be to consult God and God's Word about financial decisions. If the man in verse 17 only consulted himself and God called him a fool, then if we consult God about what to do with our money, then we would be called well done. So one thing that we can do as a church and as individuals, say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to spend my money? I heard one preacher say that we look back on Christians back you know, before Slavery was outlawed and we say, how could you come to to church every Sunday and say that you believe in Jesus who came for the freedom of all men and yet own people as property? But I think that, you know, if people look back at us maybe a hundred years from now, they say, how could you believe that there are so many people around the world without the gospel and spend so much on yourselves? Number two, verse 15, realize that life is not all about money. Jesus says your life, even when it has an abundance, is, does not consist of your possessions. Martin Luther said we've got to have three areas of conversion. One is the conversion of the head. To believe that God is. Secondly, of the heart. To dedicate all that I am to Him. And third, the dedication of the conversion of the pocketbook. I heard one preacher say, he's like, alright, we're going to give a, you're an offering now. Let's stand up and get the wallet of the person in front of you and give as much as you want. It's easy to do that, right? To say, if I had a million dollars, this is what I'd do. But Jesus' question is, what are you going to do with what you have? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Verse 20, the third action point. Recognize the foolishness of stockpiling for security. This guy thought that he would be secure by how much he had. You ever been to a hotel room before? You know, you, you go to in the hotel room and, and all of a sudden you, you pick up the phone and you're, you talk to the local furniture company. You're like, yeah, I need to order some furniture. Yes, sir, I'll take two couches and uh, I don't know, whatever else you got. I need to decorate my hotel room. And then you go down to Sherwin-Williams and buy some paint. You begin to paint the walls. You begin to put all this money. You're like, 
um, I've never done that. And if you have done that, we have counseling. We can help you, okay? That doesn't make sense. Why? Because we're not going to be there for very long. And Jesus is saying that we cannot gain satisfaction and security from money. Because notice in verse 20 again, God said, you fool, because this night your life will be required of you. So you're like, Jeff, what does this mean? How can I not be foolish and just stockpile? Send it on ahead. Remember what David prayed? We, we never pray this prayer, by the way. David prayed, God, don't give me too, too much to where I get all of this money and then think, because I have all this money, I don't need you anymore. And don't give me too little that I'll be forced to break the law to steal to feed my family. Give me just what I need. Why don't we pray that? It goes against our culture. Fourth action point in verse 20. Remember the uncertainty of life. He said, this very night your soul is required of you. Psalm chapter 23 verses 4 and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle it flies toward the heavens. Number five, invest your possessions wisely. Jesus Said this man, reasoned to himself, he said, all right, I've got barns, what am I going to do? I'm going to bring in the wrecking crew, tear them down and build bigger barns. We do that today in America, but I want to give you a statistic. According to UNICEF, 24,000 children die each day due to poverty. It's recorded that they die quietly in some of the poorest villages on earth, far removed from the scrutiny and the conscience of the world. Being meek and weak in life makes these dying multitudes even more invisible in death. But it's our duty, listen, brothers and sisters, it is our duty to bring the gospel to people and help them with their physical needs and get them the gospel so that they can be saved. When I was in Brazil, there was a, a pastor there who said he was preaching at this church and this pastor didn't invite him over to eat and that was against the custom there because they almost always do that. If you go preach somewhere, the pastor invites you over. And the pastor told him afterwards, he said, the reason why I didn't invite you over because we have no food. None. It was a very economically depressed area. The pastor couldn't even find work. The church couldn't pay him. So he literally had nothing. And something that I've had to realize the last couple of years is that there are certain places in the world that it doesn't matter how smart you are, how honest you are, how good of a worker you are, how diligent, you will not be able to save up money. Because the money is not there, the government will take it away. So Flavio said, I went into town 20 miles away and I bought $50 worth of groceries. I came back and I said, God has provided for you. Listen, there are people all around the world who don't even have a barn. And yet in the U.S., what we think when we get bonuses and get a pay raise, we think, what can I buy for me? We can break this chain of materialism. I'm telling you, friends, as best I can express my heart, it is anti-Christian, it is against the gospel. And if we simply say, God, how can I use what you've given me to bring the gospel overseas? We can reach, seriously, seriously, there have been studies done. We can bring the gospel to every place on the planet in this generation if people would simply give. Say, well, Jeff, how do I, how do, how do we do this? Verse 31, Jesus gives an application point. He says, but seek first His kingdom. His kingdom. God's kingdom. 
and these things will be added unto you. Oswald Chambers said, Beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The IMB did a study, and they said that in the world right now, there are 11,702 people groups. There are 6,780 unreached people groups. That means they do not have the gospel. There are 2,134 unreached people groups that have more than 100,000 people. There are 581 unengaged and unreached people groups with more than 100,000 people. That means that they have not even had the gospel brought to them yet. And yet, the International Mission Board, we as, as Baptist support, we have 5,296 missionaries. You know what? Last year, they had missionaries waiting. Young families, ready to go overseas, dedicate their whole lives to bring the gospel to these places, but they didn't have enough money because we have to have bigger barns. I was checking the IMB's website last night called The Unfinished Task. And this is the number of people not having an opportunity to hear the gospel. This is kind of like if you've gone to the debtclock.com, the U.S. national debt, that goes up a lot, a lot faster. But this one, it went up at least one person per second in a few minutes that I was watching. Three billion. These are people not having an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel. Three billion. 558,229,915,916,917 people are being born in the darkest regions of the world every single second. And yet in the U.S., let's just be honest, we build bigger barns for ourselves. Say, well, how can I change that? Here's how. Number six, remember the lasting power of investments. Jesus says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That means that where I invest, that's where I'm passionate. And the reason why sometimes we have a lack of passion in missions is because we don't invest in it. We put a little bit but not as much as we should. The Bible says in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, this is awesome, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord, He is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? I know a family at First Baptist Church of Colleyville, Texas, and they go around the world and they dig wells so these people who don't have clean drinking water can have clean drinking water. And then they come to the well and they preach the Gospel to them and people are saved. And when I was in Brazil, I met a guy named Carlos who had this good job, but he quit his job. And all he does is he, he drives around Americans who come down there to do mission trips and he lives on what they give him. I know another man who was making 70 grand a year, 70K in Brazil. That's called living like a king. 
And yet, God's call came to his life and said, I want you to quit your job and I want you to go into full-time service for me working in these little outlying places in the Amazon and Alagoas all over Brazil and I want you to give everything up for me. He walked in and he told his boss, he said, I'm quitting. God told me to quit. His boss said, you're crazy. God doesn't talk to people. He said he talked to me. For six months, his boss called him back, said the job's still open. Job's still open. But you've never met a guy who's more fulfilled and passionate about seeing people saved than this guy because Jesus told us that if we give everything we have for Him, He will give us everything that we need. And finally, verse 40 of chapter 12. Remember that one day we're going to meet Jesus. Verse 40 says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So in the U.S., I'm not saying that God's going to tell you never to play ball again. I'm not saying that God's going to say, you know, never go to school and, and learn from books. It may be that God will tell you to sell something and give it so that the gospel can go. I don't know. God works differently with different people. All of these things... Um, I'm not married, so I don't have a marriage ring. This is a picture of my friends who are married. Hopefully it doesn't creep them out when I tell them I use it in church. Anyway, you know, marriage, you've got time. All of this stuff, if we use it for the glory of God, God will do amazing things. But notice what God said. He said that all of our possessions, if we treasure them up for ourselves and use what He's given us simply to meet our own desires... That's why God said, at the end of your life, stand before God and say, God, here's my hobbies and my bank account. And God said, none of that is here because you never sent it. But I pray that this is the story of my life and your life. That we would redeem the wasted time, all the things that we've poured into the bottomless pit of selfishness, and say, Jesus, I'm coming to You. I'm laying my life, my possessions, my relationships on Your altar. I'm giving everything that I know from my heart to You.